Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 171. A few weeks back, I traveled to NYU and sat down with several scientists there one at a time, to just sort of talk, talk about their work, talk about science. It's a different format from what I usually do on the show and that these conversations go wherever they go. It's something I've enjoyed doing a lot lately, visiting scientists in their offices and talking about what they're working on at the moment, what's on their minds right now, and asking questions about what I'm interested in, sometimes just on the day that I visited. And I'll be doing more of that all year. I love it. In this episode... The guest is Jay Van Bavel, an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University in New York City, an expert on psychology, social psychology, social neuroscience, attitudes, evaluation, intergroup relations, moral psychology, professional development, and so on. His work right now focuses on identity, moral values, and political beliefs, and how those things intermingle and how they shape the mind and the brain. In the conversation, we talk about fake news, intergroup hypocrisy, theory of mind, identity, dating apps, morals, post-truth, post-trust, what makes a message go viral on Twitter, accuracy goals versus motivated reasoning, and more. This was recorded in his office, so the audio will sound like audio recorded in an office. And I'm a little under the weather in the interview, so I'll sound a little loopy at times, but I think you're going to enjoy this because Jay recently produced a paper titled The Partisan Brain, an Identity-Based Model of Political Belief that I just keep going back to when I wonder why people are so resistant to facts in these strange times, and we talk about that a lot. All right, enough introduction. Here is the interview. My name is Jay Van Bavel. I'm an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. Uh, so, uh, hey, how are hey. you doing, Jay? Good. <laughs> uh, first time in your office. Uh, I like any uh, scientist office where science science stuff is up on the walls, like and it wasn't like planned. Like, what's going on on your on your whiteboard over here? This is uh, MRI study you were running right now. I'm starting to analyze looking at the neuroscience behind fake news belief 
So we have Democrats, Republicans who came in the study, and we're trying to figure out how to analyze the data and what kind of predictions we're going to look for uh, in terms of brain activity and how we're going to analyze it to see if there's differences in how Democrats or Republicans process real news versus fake news, and then if that predicts uh, their willingness to share it. And what do you what do you define how you how you define fake news in this in this research? So, what we've done in previous studies is actually take real fake news that mm-hmm. was popular, for example, in the lead up to the last election. Um, what we've done in this study and some other studies is create fake news. So this is what I call fake fake news mm-hmm. uh, because it wasn't real fake news. And then that way we can control for a lot of other variables. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, we can take fake news about a Democrat. Um, engaging in some kind of corruption and create the exact same story about a Republican and show, you know, um, through randomization, some participants will see one type of fake news, another the other, and then we can control statistically, or sorry, uh, experimentally, so that everybody's seeing the similar type of fake news about the other party. And that way we can draw real conclusions. Is it processed differently between the left and the right? Whereas in the real world, there's so many confounds. You don't know Mm. if... Republicans are seeing different types of fake news and Democrats, and if that's leading them to be more likely to share it. So this yeah. way we can really get at what are the kind of foundational differences between the two sides. you have any, uh, anything pop in, the, in your, like, what's a good example of like a, a fake news story that you created, a fake fake news story? So the ones we've done in this study are particularly around the co- corruption of Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. We also not only want to see um, are people willing to believe it and share it, but we want to see if they're willing to punish one side more fiercely than the other. Mm. So as we're entering, I think, the impeachment, we're wondering, are people going to treat um, the exact same acts of corruption differently if it was committed by someone on the left or right? And the impeachment was kind of our inspiration behind this, because you can look at where Democrats and Republicans, what they literally said when Trump, are, are, sorry, as Trump is under impeachment, versus when Bill Clinton was under impeachment. Mm -hmm. And you can see some people, Lindsey Graham is a great case of this, saying complete opposite things about how he values due process and being impartial and listening to the facts. Uh, When he was advocating for Democrats to listen to the case against Clinton, um, now says that he's not going to do that uh, in the lead-up to the vote against Trump. And so you can see flip-flopping by Mm -hmm. politicians on these two different cases and so we want to see, experimentally, um, controlling for all the other differences, do we still see this type of uh, intergroup hypocrisy? Uh, I love it. I love that there's like a, you've got a bell curve going on over here, and some uh, <laughs> and lots of X's and uh, algorithmically looking things. That, um, when you were talking about Lindsey Graham and, and, and such people, do you think that, I mean, this is total, just speculation in your opinion, like, like surely they know they're doing it, right? I mean, at that level of politics, it's not like a, a, per, a person on the street committing these biases and fallacies, right? Don't they know they're doing what they're doing? So, yeah. So, we use political elites as uh, inspiration for our studies sometimes, but we do recognize that political elites are playing a different game mm. than the average voter is. Mm. And so, that's one of the questions. Um, they might be doing it strategically to get reelected to get enough fundraising for their campaign to position himself for like a privileged cabinet post or chairmanship of some committee. Whereas uh, real people don't have that same incentive structure. Their incentive structures are more about their social relationships with others and their psychological connection to the political party. And so we want to see among the average type of voter, 
are they going through these same uh, mental gymnastics when they're thinking about these issues? What do you think? Going in. What's your hypothesis going in? <laughs> our hypothesis. I'm you to pre-register with okay, me. our hypothesis going in is that there's going to be that there is going to be some bias in how people process news, uh, bad news about in-group members versus out-group members. They're more likely to believe bad news about out-group members and good news about in-group members. And we thought that that might be fairly similar across the political spectrum. Um, and then the second set of uh, questions we had, and these were more uh, you know, questions rather than hard hypotheses because there hasn't been a lot of work done on this, is once you go into the brain, you want to see, are these decisions being processed differently? So what neuroscience allows us to do is the equivalent of looking under the hood. Mm. So if you have car problems, your car won't start, you turn the key, it won't start in the morning. Um, you can just keep turning that key and it won't start. You need to take it in, for the most part, to mechanic. And they'll lift up the hood and see, is it an issue with the spark plugs? Mm. Or um, the fan belt? Or is it low on oil? Or is it out of gas? Um, or is something wrong with the pistons? And so that's what we're doing by using fMRI. We're looking, is this something about uh, high-level motivated reasoning in the prefrontal cortex? Is this something about they're having a different emotional response um, in the amygdala or the insula to uh, information, maybe bad information about members of their own party? Um, is it something about social cognition that they're inferring differences in intent? Maybe they think a Democrat might think the Democrat who did the bad thing didn't intend to do it, whereas they think if a Republican did the same thing that they might have intended to do it. Where, where, where would that hide? So that would be... Straightforward prediction would be uh, the temporal parietal junction, which is involved in theory of mind. Yeah. That you're putting yourself in their mind to make these inferences about their intent. So you might do that more um, for an outgroup member who does a bad thing. Okay. And what seems to be the thing that you're obsessed with research-wise these days? The big thing that we study is around issues of social identity, mm-hmm. how we identify with groups, and how that affects our moral judgments and mm-hmm. values. Um, I can't help but be fascinated by politics. Mm. In an age of massive polarization, um, the role of social media and all this, and the spread of misinformation and fake news, I've been using the theories and tools uh, that we've used for a long time to study identity to see how those can help us understand what's going on politically in this country and other countries. Well, this is like, um, you know, this is it. For most people, when they want to like, listen, when they listen to the podcast these days, they're like, just please just only do shows about this kind of stuff. Um, and I get it. Um, and I keep trying to make it not about politics, but about what's underlying that and then what's underlying that and keep going down until we get to quarks if we can do it, right? Uh, which is why I love your work because you... Um, it's not so much about studying, I mean, studying behavior, but you're actually doing all, all sorts of stuff, looking into brain regions being, uh, you know, getting blood for doing different things. Um, so uh, I, there's, I want to talk a lot about social identity and, uh, and group identity because I feel like people are catching on to the fact that this is a fundamental drive. But um, I would say a few years back, it wasn't so easy to convince someone that they're motivated to behave, think, feel in ways they wouldn't if they weren't, you know, partisan or if they just any kind of, any kind of if they were part of any kind of group. Uh, something that I, and you you tell me if I'm on to something here. Is it kind of strange to you that I read an article I read I remember it was in the New York Times, of all things, there were was a wedding announcement of two people who were vegans 
And they were just so happy they had finally met a vegan so they could get married to a vegan because they felt like the lifestyle was so, was so important to matchmaking. And I just interviewed the leader of the Flat Earthers, or the, he wouldn't call himself the leader, he is the leader, right? And he was, he was telling me about they have dating apps just for Flat Earthers because mm-hmm. you have to, that has to be taken care of off the bat, right? Um, I mean, has this always been a thing? It seems new to me that you can, your identity can be vegan. Your identity can be, I'm into this conspiracy theory. I just feel like that used to be stuff you were into, or that's your dietary decisions, but that can't be like who you are. But now that's leading. Is like, I will only marry a person who eats the stuff I eat. Is that what's going on? So I love the dating example. There's all kinds of dating apps like uh, matchmaking for vegans or vegetarians or different types of food preferences. And it seems like food preference is a case where that would matter a lot, right? If you're going to sit down for dinner or for lunch together, mm-hmm. it's useful to at least think that the person is going to share some of your preferences. Yeah, well, if you've got a medical condition, like you got gout, you can't, and the other person loves beer, you're just, you're just like, okay, fine. It's not going to like end my relationship. Yeah, so, so this is where it's, I think, uh, technology has put these things on steroids. Where it used to be you did the best you could through the people you could meet through work and uh, the hobbies or clubs you had, and you had to make some trade-offs. You might not be able to get a vegan who you're also attracted to, who has the same life goals as you and shares your values around religion or politics. Um, Now, if that's a really central identity for somebody, they can lead lead with it, they can uh, identify and find somebody very easily. And they can match up and go through a lot of different dates with those types of people, especially mm-hmm. in a place like New York. There, there's probably tens or hundreds of thousands of people with similar dietary preferences. And so that turns out to be a powerful tool we have for sorting. Now, once you find people like that and you're on that dating scene, it just reinforces that identity for you because you're kind of, we talk about echo chambers online around politics, but you can create an echo chamber around your identity. Mm-hmm. You could identify a partner um, who shares those eating preferences. You can start to hang out with other people who share those preferences and you can rationalize and justify and reinforce one another's preferences, um, decide certain types of restaurants or places you want to hang out that are good for those types of things. And you can create a whole little community around this eating uh, uh, palate uh, or dietary style that you have. And so that's changed things dramatically. They're now uh, dating apps for uh, people with different political preferences. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking, if you're a Trump supporter, you want to find another Trump supporter, there's now an app for that mm-hmm. to find somebody for uh, dating purposes. And I'll tell you why that one's important and interesting. Um, there used to be barriers around things like interracial dating, legal barriers in this country historically uh, that promoted uh, discrimination. But that those laws have changed over time, and there's much more interracial, interethnic, interreligious dating. Um, one thing that has become more aversive to people in the last few years is interparty dating. So now most people are averse to dating somebody from another party, or they don't want their kids to date somebody from mm-hmm. another party. And now we have apps that reinforce it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a study a few years ago. It was actually around the Trump inauguration and the Women's March, which I think was like the day or two after that in D.C., and we teamed up with a, a radio station in New York, WNYC, and gave them some questions. They went down and collected data from like over a thousand people, and we asked them if people would be willing to date someone from the other political party or political rally. And the numbers were shocking. I think it was like ten to twenty percent of people were willing to date somebody 
cross-party dating. And that's, uh, I don't blame people, <laughs> but, and, and, and dating is actually one of those rare situations in society where we allow discrimination. Mm-hmm. It's because no one's going to force you to date somebody or sleep with somebody. And so it's a place where we allow enormous latitude and amount of freedom in our country. Um, and so people can openly, are comfortable openly telling you that they just wouldn't date somebody who is aligned with another oh, political group. So like you that. think this is like, that's always been something, or is that a, a feature of our times? I know you sort of touched on that, but I, it's the, the thing that I'm wondering, like, how did people identify themselves, let's say, 100 years ago? Like, like what was leading when I said, when I think of my identity, what are the features that I would present to you as, as, as features of how I identify myself yeah. versus today? So, so first of all, I don't want to imply that I'm a historical scholar on sure, sure, dating sure. traditions. Pure speculation, but, but, but you know what I mean. Like, my, my understanding is that it was uh, dating in more traditional communities is was determined by things like religion, um, uh, racial identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been determined more by your parents in your community. So you still have this in other countries where you have parents selecting someone who's appropriate for you to date. And that is determined on features like social class and things like that. So, so it's exciting because it's in some ways it seems weird and maybe oppressive or discriminatory because you're not willing to date somebody outside your dietary preferences. On the other hand, it is a break from a lot of ways we used to carve up society. Yeah. And people have the freedom to carve up in new ways that are less imposed on them by older generations yeah, or it. structural powers. So I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. Um, it is because it's a choice versus yeah. you're yeah. you were born into yeah. that religion. You were born into that geographical region. Yeah. So people have that freedom. The other thing that you mentioned is it's secularized, um, but it's also funny in that it's secularized, so it's not connected to a belief system like a religious belief system. On the other hand, it's moralized. So for the last few decades, we've moralized things like. Uh, eating, uh, having a vegetarian or vegan diet. So mm-hmm. it's not just people are doing this not just for dietary reasons. They're doing it because the effects on climate change or harm to animals. Mm-hmm. And so when you're deciding who you want to be in a relationship with, you want somebody who aligns with your values. That might have meant in the past someone who went to your, uh, relig- shared your religious practices, went to your church or temple or mosque. Now it might mean somebody who also shares my belief that we shouldn't torture uh, animals in cages for our own edification or someone who cares about the future of the earth and reducing their carbon footprint. So those are legitimate moral value systems. And now when we're deciding who to date, it's a different set of moral considerations. Okay, this is, this is definitely the thing I want to talk to you about. Because <laughs> okay. I'm deeply fascinated right now with the idea of values and morals and moral systems mm-hmm. and how it feels like uh, we're in. An, we definitely are in an era, or maybe we always were like this, and it's just all been amplified. That everything has a moral cost to it, or a moral reward to it. Every behavior, every, even down to like you know socks and shoes, and uh, and what kind of uh, you had mentioned this when we spoke earlier. Like what kind of um, milk did I put into my latte? Like mm-hmm. like can all be moralized and can signal something to my in group or signal something to my out group. Um, to get let's start foundationally like how would you define a value and then on top of that how would you define a value uh, differently than you would define morals or a morality system Mm -hmm. so I think values are more specific 
Um, morality starts to get into general assumptions about right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, I, I see it as related to a bunch of subset of values that you hold. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to harm people. Um, I care for people who are suffering. Um, I'm going to respect authority. Uh, I'm going to be a loyal uh, family member or friend. So those are different types of values you can have. And all of that is embedded within some moral system or ideology mm-hmm. that you have. But you can also have a value like, I, I believe you're supposed to work hard, tell the truth. Or are those just a reframing of other morality-like categories? Or is, can there be values that are like, you know, I believe... I mean, if, let's say you're a professional couch maker. Like, you know, like, 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 I don't believe a person should have a manufactured couch in their house. That's mm-hmm. an important value to me. Is that you should have handmade couches all throughout your home yeah. if you're going to have a house. Yeah. So, hand, you know, could that be considered value as well? So once it moves, so where we would consider it um, moving from just a preference to some kind of moralized value is where it moves from, I think that I should have a custom-made couch in my office where I know the craftsperson who made it and I have a connection to them and, and I'm paying for local local artisanal business. Um, but that it becomes... When I see it starting to move into the moral domain, it's when you start to universalize that. I start to think that not only should I do this, but everybody that should have one that's made by an artisanal you know, furniture maker in Brooklyn. Um, and if they don't, they're doing something immoral because they're supporting large corporations or the exploitation of labor mm-hmm. in another country or they're not buying local. And so then I start to judge them. I mm-hmm. decide I don't want to hang out with those friends or invite them to my party um, or I'm going to say something to them and call them out on it the next time that I'm at an event with them. And so that's where it goes from just my pre- personal preference to a value that I've connected to my moral belief system. Okay. So now here's the big question. And I understand we're talking about stuff that you're still trying to figure out. <laughs> but but uh, like, why would an organism do such a thing? Uh, so there's great reasons that organisms do it. One way, one reason why humans do it, and, and I think other primates, is it allows us to coordinate as groups. Um, it allows us to signal very easily who's with us and who's against us. That, and when we know who's against us, we know who we should sacrifice for, who's going to sacrifice for us, um, who's going to be there to protect us if there's foreign invaders or uh, you know a pride of lions mm-hmm. moving close to our little village of huts in the Serengeti. So. From an evolutionary perspective, morality allowed us to identify groups that we belong to and ones that were against us and coordinate behavior in ways that benefited all of us. And so we have that same, our brains aren't that different from our ancestors from 100,000 years ago or longer. And so we're equipped with the same set of reasoning and intuitions about right and wrong. And we have those same triggers. Now we're in a modern Environment. We're in downtown New York and Manhattan in my office. This environment is radically different from what our ancestors lived in in, in you know, the, the Serengeti of Africa millions mm-hmm. of years ago. But we have very similar brains to them. Yeah. We're solving new problems. Um, but now we can find like-minded people on dating apps, on social media, um, in the street based on what people wear. We can walk into Yankee Stadium if everybody else is wearing the Yankees hat. We're giving high fives to the person next to us even though... They're a complete stranger, right. and we'd walk past them on the street otherwise. Mm-hmm. So this is part of our evolutionary heritage that was 
that evolved because it solved certain types of problems for us. Um, now we're in a very different environment, and so some of those things still work. We still feel comfortable when we're part of a group and we're working together. Uh, that is a very rewarding thing for us because the way our brains are designed, but it can also have all these consequences. And sometimes our brains don't fit well into a modern work environment. Yeah. You know, where you get little political coalitions forming and silos and organizations, right? And, and political parties breaking apart. I've spent a couple of days, and I, I've spent no, I've spent quite a bit of time walking through the halls of academia. And uh, and if you follow a bunch of academics on Twitter, you're like, I'm going to read all these cool papers that they're going to talk about. No, it's 98 percent politics and you know, grousing about this policy and why this university does this and this is bullshit. It's like. It's all politics. There's no talking about research on academic Twitter. Academic Twitter is, yeah, is just like uh, quibbles about... It is. Even if you're following political scientists, uh, like, they're not talking about politics. They're talking about the politics of their life. Uh, And you're like, oh, well, I guess that makes sense. That's what people do. That was, um, Aristotle wrote that, that we're political animals. We're social animals. And this is part of, when when you say the word animals, even though that predated evolutionary theory... It comes from the notion that we are animals, and this is just part of baked into our DNA. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, yeah. We're, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I know there are plenty of people who don't want to think in that way, that, we aren't, that we're not animals or that we're separate from the animal kingdom. We're a special animal. We're not exactly... You know, we're this very special primate or we're not primates. But it's like, could there be anything more, like... Could there be any greater evidence to, that, that something is amiss than... The weirdness of how we're clumping up on you know on these new social tools where people like like the the flat earth thing should be like whoa right the the fact that vegans are like I'm not going to marry you unless you're vegan like the dating apps for uh, you know Trump supporters only like something's we're weird right like we're weird animals um, <laughs> the there's a thing that you helped solve for me and you already know this but like uh, uh, I got down this line of obsession when I found out about that study that was done um, by uh, um, Sam Harris and his colleagues, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Gimbal, Captain Harris. Um, they put people in the scanner. The whole thing you, is like your bread and butter. And they had them, they threatened, they showed them counter-attitudinal evidence about stuff like paper bags, plastic bags. Um, but when they showed them anything that had to do with something that was highly partisan, they noticed the different kinds of activation in the brain, and they described me back then, back when I had no idea what all this meant. It was like they were being attacked by a bear. And it just, I was, I remember asking them, but why? And they at the time had said, we don't know that yet, we just know it happened, which is cool. And it was it really wasn't until I found, um, I talked to Liliana Mason, and then I saw this, this that I have in front of me, the partisan brain that, that you wrote, or that you were a co-author on, that I was like, oh, now I can kind of get it. And it was because you talked about the hierarchies of goals or and goals clumping and goals and, and that the idea that a belonging goal can be more important than an accuracy goal. So I want to talk about all that. Um, before getting started though, like there's this word identity that still doesn't quite um, have this like definite definition to me. Definite definition, yeah. Um, it is not clearly defined to me in a scientific sense. Because I think about belonging and I think like how identity sometimes identity doesn't you think about identity as being like, this is how I think of me. But the more research I look at, the more identity is really how I think of my reputation to others. And it feels like it's not a me thing. It's, it's more of an audience-facing thing. So what, how does it, all that work for you? So we can have an identity. We, 
when we think about the term identity, if you go on the street, we go to Broadway and ask people, what is identity? It's the study we should do. I mean, part, of, part of this conversation. Um, people are going to say, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a daughter. Um, I, but they might start saying in things like, I'm a Yankees fan. I am an employee at New York University. I'm a professor. And once they layer in those things, they're signaling that a lot of the ways that they think about themselves are, active, are actively about the collectives that they belong to. And even if you think about if, if someone says I'm a mother or a daughter, those also come with a set of assumptions about what it means to be a mother relative to other mothers. Mm-hmm. Um, or I'm a father. I'm often thinking and reflecting on being a good dad and what does that mean? And it means that there's exemplars in my head of good dads and exemplars of bad dads. And so you are comparing yourself to others and, and fathers don't face this as badly as mothers, but there's a lot of shame if you don't live up to those standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be public shame, you know, at a, at a park near here. If I, when my kids were little, if I took them to the park and did something that some other parent approved of, you get a look of shame or a comment. So what that means is people are judging you according to that category membership as well. And that's making it salient over and over in your mind. Um, and so there's kind of two things happening there. One is that we get to select into different identities. Like I use the term Yankees fan. No one's forcing you to be a Yankees fan. You get to walk into the stadium if you're willing to buy a ticket um, and buy a jersey and put it on when mm-hmm. you go sit down and cheer. Um, and that's a very effortful thing that requires a lot of decision making. Um, but other identities are imposed on us. So when I use the example of daughter, that's not something anybody chose to be. Mm-hmm. They were born... And, it, and, it, and then they were someone's daughter. Um, or if I have a kid, suddenly I'm seen as a dad, even if that's something I didn't really want. Mm. So there are identities that we select. There are others that are imposed on us. And all of these get basically, uh, over time, integrated in our own mind about who we are. And then they all sit there as potential ways of thinking about ourselves. And this is the key thing about, about the social identity approach that I come from. Then, which identity is driving my thinking is determined by the situation I'm in. Mm-hmm. And this is where you said reputation matters. Um, so if I'm at the playground, I'm thinking about myself as a dad. If I'm at uh, Yankee Stadium, I might be thinking about myself as a baseball fan. When I'm in a faculty meeting here, I'm thinking of myself as a professor. When I go back home for the holidays, I'm thinking about myself as a Canadian. And so all of these different identities are basically latent in us much of the time and become active when there are certain triggers, when we're in certain situations around certain people. saying the trigger is the audience that we see that is salient to us? Yes. Like, it's unsettling to me. Like, my identity, who am I, depends Mm -hmm. on who's watching. Yeah. But I would say there can be, you can have an identity, a social identity that's active without an audience. So I'll give you an example when I was watching the Winter Olympics a few years ago, it was the last day of the Olympics. Team Canada is playing for the gold medal in, the, the, in hockey, which is our national sport. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in my living room alone watching it, and then they scored the winning goal. And I felt like running down the street in New York. If I had had a Canadian flag, I would have done it yeah. by myself. And so it was one of those things where no one was with me. I'm here. I moved to you know Canada. I was only here a couple of years in New York, and I didn't really have a lot of... I didn't really know any other Canadian friends, and I'm sitting in my living room alone, and my and my heart is racing <laughs> as the game gets tighter and tighter, and I'm sitting at the edge of my seat, 
And I have such a, a sense of overwhelming joy when they scored the goal, even though I'm not on the ice, I'm not in the stadium, I'm not surrounded by fellow Canadians, no one can see me. And so there is a part of it that gets so deeply internalized yeah. that it can get triggered with no one else around us. So, yeah. it's, so even though reputation and who we're around is a big part of it, that's not all of it. Yeah, but I think like you say that reminds me of like when I'm, I work from home and I usually get up and put on clothes that I would think would be appropriate to work with, audience. <laughs> right? with no audience. Um, and I think like it feels like when you when you get into an argument with someone and you get in the shower and you start re- preparing your rebuttal in the shower, like yes, there's no audience, but you're still exercising the audience is, is looking at me psychological mm-hmm. muscles. You know, like it wouldn't be there if there hadn't been the audience. I'm sure that's what you're already saying. I'm just you start to internalize, yeah. So yeah. you would do internalize the audience. Um, you internalize the audience. That's a really great phrase. Yeah, and then that's part of our identity as we walk around. Um, you know, it, even as an academic, I've internalized a lot of the criticism of my advisor from graduate school, and he's kind of always a critic in the back of my mind. And I feel like if I took a shortcut or did something vacuous, he'd be frowning at me. Because I know yeah. from many, many meetings and group meetings and seeing the look on his face as I'm presenting, that all got internalized and that becomes part of who I am, even though it's been 10 years since I yeah. was in that lab. And many cultures like imagine their ancestors watching them. Yeah. Uh, or even if you are you, there are many modern cultures that imagine just, you know, your your parents, or your grandparents watching you or are, are, are you being held accountable to them? Or God. Yeah, well, there's the, and there's I, that. Yeah, our whole religious tool is um, that God's looking at everything you do. Or for for my kids, it's the elf on the shelf. You know, <laughs> trying to, to internalize someone watching them. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. It's a new year, and that means it's time to reflect, and it's time to set goals. Goals for the year ahead. And whether that means discovering new interests or expanding your knowledge on specific topics, The Great Courses Plus has you covered. This online learning service offers thousands of lectures covering everything from psychology to history to science to personal development to math and art and astronomy, and the list goes on. There is something in The Great Courses Plus for everyone, for you, dear listener, They're taught by the best professors and experts from top universities and institutions around the world so you know the information is reliable. Now, I'm listening to one right now called Understanding the Misconceptions of Science. It's 24 lectures. Each one's about 30 minutes long. The first one is What the World Gets Wrong About Science. And then it goes from there. Franklin's Kite, The Ideal Gas Laws, How Flying Works, How Falling Works, Orbital Motion, What's Inside Atoms. What I like about it is it takes the approach of here's how they taught this to you in school and here's the actual way it works. Like schools have to do things quickly, get as much into your head as efficiently as possible. This course takes the approach of saying, but this is how we would teach it if we had the time. And I really dig it. It's got everything in it from misconceptions about evolution to whether or not aliens could possibly exist to nutrition to just everything, genetics, radiation, Carbon dating, statistics, it's great stuff. Just like everything they have at The Great Courses Plus. So, new year, set a goal to learn more. Learn more and more and more all year long by signing up for The Great Courses Plus today. They're offering my listeners an entire month of unlimited access for free. You get a whole month, month. Do you know how much stuff you can watch 
or listen to in a month. Unlimited access for free for one month by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's all you have to do. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Get a free month of this cool service. One more time, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McRaney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And now we return to our conversation with Jay Van Babel. And as an aside, before I move to the next thing, because I'll forget it, like, there's a study of what I want you to do. And, like, obviously, I'm just saying, like, wouldn't it be cool to use um, uh, face swapping technology, deep fake, you know, face swapping, yeah. to put, um, the new, put news items from a untrusted news source into the mouths of a trusted news source. And That's see, a cool study. And see how uh, partisans would react. I want to do that so badly. Okay. I just think that's the coolest thing. Let's it's do that e- study. It's easy to do. That technology is cheap. And we just need someone to fund uh, some time for us to do it. It would be great. <laughs> and you could even get, like, if you wanted to, like, get it, like, uh, sensationalized, there's a there's alt-shift face who is, like, the best deep faker on YouTube who puts out a video every once in a while, like, every week. Does like all the Arnold Schwarzenegger stuff. So I love that study. As technology evolves, I'm also horrified that we find it and it works and we publish it and then it gets weaponized. Well, it's going to be anyway, right? right, There might as well be some science out there. Like um, that is that that does lead to a question: Uh, internalizing this audience and there's there's this interaction of identity between there being an audience, but also being. Um, elites, right? Like, mm-hmm. like my identity also has to do with like which elites do I trust? Mm-hmm. You can talk about that for a minute. Yeah. So this is especially important in politics, but this affects all kinds of groups. Whether it's your religious leader, um, a mem- you know, the representative of your country. Uh, it could be also for me, like my hockey coach growing up, or it could be a cult leader. There are people that are working to shape the coordination of the group, and they can be doing it for good. Mm. Or they can be exploiting the group for their own benefit. Or they can be doing it for just sheer harm. They can be doing it to create conflict or go to war with another country or another group. So in politics, where this has been studied a lot by political scientists, they focus on how elites shape the set of beliefs that people hold. And so it turns out that the people who are really hyper-partisan are people who've been paying a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So they're hyper-engaged, they're highly knowledgeable politics. And what you find is people who are highly knowledgeable and engaged in politics often have the greatest polarization between the left and the right. And the reason for that is they're paying a lot of attention to what their elites are telling them about what set of beliefs to hold. And it turns out that those people actually have pretty coherent belief systems. Um, that they're, if they're economically conservative, they're also socially conservative. Or if they're economically liberal, they're also socially liberal. But for people who aren't paying that much attention to politics, economic and social political beliefs don't, aren't actually very strongly correlated. Mm-hmm. They're correlated, but it's more modest. And it's really only the knowledge uh, of what elites are telling you that makes you uh, have this coherent set of beliefs. It is associated with polarization and that's the type of uh, belief system and knowledge set that actually foments conflict. Yeah. I would imagine that, so that anything, 
any external externality that is going to affect the ability for the people who shape the coordination of groups to have more contact with group members mm-hmm. is going to deeply affect partisanship, and that's what we've seen. Yeah, and that's what we've seen. Yeah, like like, and new technologies come along all the time that do this. Like McLuhan loved to talk about this. Where you like you introduce the radio, a bunch of shit goes down, and then it kind of levels off. And I've gotten, I think you too. We've gotten to live through like television comes out. Mm-hmm. And we I'm not that old. Not that old. No, but like, we live through like the good part of it. Yeah. We're like people were terrified of TV the same way we were terrified of the internet and social mm-hmm. media. And then we kind of got used to it, and it leveled itself out. It, mm-hmm. the, the 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 medium discovered its its optimal message, and then um, it was sort of innocuous and uh, and and boring after a while. And you know, it was like this is going to destroy kids' minds, and then yeah. it just became TV, and nobody cared. Um, and so then there's ready for another sea change. Boom! Internet comes around, and it, once again, it's a new tool for not only organization but for elites to speak to their to, to organize, um, and for people who are going to consume as much information as possible from their elites. Now they can like just mm-hmm. mainline it, like super yeah. duper mainline it. No gatekeepers. Um, and I, I assume, I hope, before we shoot nuclear missiles at each other that we will it'll level off and be boring again until the next thing comes around but I'm wondering um, I had this tweet and I really wanted to ask you this it it really changed my thinking he said we don't live in a post-truth world we live in a post-trust world and I was I love that phrase so much because a lot of like what you write about in this paper comes down to if I'm trying to convince you if you're a climate change denier and I'm a science advocate and we're meeting at the level of that disagreement over climate change. I'm not a climate change expert. I have not mm-hmm. spent 13 years in Antarctica, mm-hmm. and you are not a climate change expert. You haven't spent. So we're really having a battle over who's got the most trustworthy elites, yeah. and which epistemic system on top of that do we is do we believe is the best one at deriving truth? Right. Uh, and I was wondering what, what you think about this, like. Is it more more a post trust world than a post truth world? But is that really what post truth means? Like, like it's difficult to determine who to trust, or we have differing opinions on who to trust. Yeah, I, I think that the trust part is a precondition for belief for most things, and so that is maybe the more proximal problem that we have. Yeah. So, so, so first of all, just to give you an example of this, I tried to read into some climate change papers because I was in an argument on Facebook with my old high school teacher. And he posted some climate change skepticism on a new paper. And I tried to find the paper and read it. And I'm, I have a PhD and I could not understand it. And then I quickly realized how much trust I was placing in experts in climatology. Um, what I trust in, though, because I don't even know who any of those individuals are. I trust an institution, mm-hmm. which is a scientific peer review process mm-hmm. and how papers are selected and vetted and analyzed. And that science is self-correcting. Um, not not blindly, but because scientists are actively involved in criticizing and, and overturning bad knowledge when they get new data. And so I place my faith in the institution of science. Mm-hmm. Um, I know science isn't perfect because I, I work in it and I'm part of the discussions about always trying to improve it, the science that I do and, and that my field does. Um, but on the other hand, I also know that it is the best system we have for developing accurate beliefs mm-hmm. about almost anything. In fact, if I were to be hired as a consultant to go and fix groupthink in an organization, 
peer review would be a pretty good first step. You just start implementing four or five principles from peer review, and you'll root out most of the problems that most yeah. organizations have for decision making. So I, I do believe that we have honed and developed really good systems, um, and so I trust in those systems. Um, the problem, of course, is that when people don't, and we erode trust in those institutions, or uh, it used to be the case that we had three big news channels in the United States, and that people would tune in for the nightly news at 5 p.m., and they would have a shared reality because all of them tended to report the same thing. Mm-hmm. They all had rigorous editorial standards. They tried to play it straight as much as they could with the news. Now you can really just flip the channel if you don't like what you're hearing mm-hmm. and find a spin on the news that is the opposite. Do you have? Do you feel like there are news sources that you tr- that you trust? Like, like you don't have to name them, but like I'll name them. So I, I trust the New York Times. That's what I subscribe to. Um, the New York Times has some of the best journalists in the world, and so I'm willing to pay that money to get the news from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, if I'm going to read a magazine, it's often like the Atlantic or the New Yorker. Those are the higher quality news yeah. sources for me. Um, I, I used to read more um, non-mainstream political news sources that I felt were give a fresh perspective that wasn't covered in the mainstream news. Over time, I've become more and more skeptical of them because they often don't have the same editorial standards. Mm-hmm. And so I'd rather tune in to spend my time, my, use my eyes to spend... Uh, focusing on higher and higher quality news. Yeah. Can you, as a person who's, who's starting to stu- study the, the news aspect of all this and fake news and stuff, can you empathize with people who don't trust those sources? Like, and what is driving their mistrust of it? Yeah, so, so I have family members who would never read the New York Times. And I've talked to them a lot about it. And what, I, what, what they essentially are opposed to is the tone of the news. And mm. what most people don't realize, mm. very few Americans can tell the difference between the, the opinion page or the opinion section of the news and the investigative journalism and straight news reporting mm. that's on the front page usually. And so what they usually object to is the type of voices that are doing the editorials for newspapers, mm. which are very opinion-based, less data-based. And so I think we need to do a better job of signaling clearly on social media what's opinion and what's news reporting so people can actually understand the news. Um, and, and you'll see this even if I were to tune into Fox News. Fox News itself is pretty accurate. Political scientists have analyzed it. Um, the Fox editorial are the people like Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram are often completely disconnected from factual journalistic reporting that's on Fox News. Mm-hmm. You'll see this in the little kind of wars at Fox News about how they report things right now. Um, and so you could do a reasonable job of learning what's going on in the news by watching the 5 o'clock news on Fox you, the more you tune into the editorial voices, the less and less connected it's going to be to yeah. what's actually reported in the news. Um, but most people, when if they're a conservative tuning into the New York Times, they're going to find it alienating. They're, they don't like the, the voice, the tone, the editorial. Um, so for people who I know and my family who don't like that, what I'm never going to convince them to tune in and get a subscription to the New York Times. What I try to do is con- get them to tune into higher quality news that has an editorial voice they like. So I try to get them to tune into uh, the Wall Street Journal instead of Breitbart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll get a higher quality uh, investigative journalism and reporting. Um, the other thing that I do is if I see hints of sloppy thinking or not good analytic or data-driven thinking in the news sources, I slowly tune them out. Mm. I want data even if it contradicts my beliefs. 
Um, and then I also have podcasts I listen to that I find that are scientifically driven, have interviews with quality people, are um, basically just high rigorous content. So mm-hmm. I listen to your podcast, yeah. but, I, but I also listen to things like Hidden Brain or Freakonomics. Yeah, yeah. Those aren't partisan podcasts in the least. Mm. They're just for if you want high quality, uh, rigorous discussions of topics you care about that are going to be driven by data and science and expertise. So it can be non-science expertise. You have great interviews with people who have non-scientific expertise as well. That's what I want to hear. Mm-hmm. And so I've decided I'm not going to listen to nonsense, even if it's nonsense that might make me feel good because it aligns with my political beliefs. I could care. I'm not interested. I'm with you. I mean, what, helps, <laughs> what helps me and what helps make the show better than it would be otherwise, I think, is that like I'm a... Like, you know, there's a whole thing where you're like, I can't believe it's 2019 and we're stu- still doing X. Like, I'm like... I see it completely differently. Like, like it's just 2019. Of course, we're still doing this. Whatever it is you just mentioned, right? Like, yeah. like we didn't know there were galaxies until like the 1930s. Galaxies, yeah. man, galaxies. <laughs> we didn't we didn't put wheels on luggage until like like a decade and a half ago. Oh wow, that yeah, dude. It's that just was a radical innovation. It's just 2019. <laughs> like, of course, yeah. we're 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 doing weird stuff with Brexit and and mm-hmm. and uh, of course, uh, you know police are still running amok like like science every domain of science has in my opinion a good you know thousand years worth of work ahead of it to get to a pretty good place mm-hmm. right uh brain scanners aren't don't nearly have the fidelity that i can imagine they'll have can you imagine a brain scanner 500 years from now what is going to yeah. show you like that excites me right um i i find news content that takes a perspective where things are much more we understand ourselves much better than that. Um, yeah. That's when I start to turn away from it. We're like, it's so sure that this is the way things are. I'm like, we are really just figuring everything out. Even like, what's a good society? It's we're just getting there, you know. Yeah. So I, I remain hopeful for a couple reasons, but you've touched on a couple things I care about. Uh, one is that I do think over time uh, we've gotten better. Our institutions have gotten better and better, and so you can look at all kinds of measures about like infant death rates and global poverty yeah, and uh, intergroup conflict, um, warfare, murder. We are living in an amazing time in history mm-hmm. because the trajectory has been positive. We've been figuring all kinds of things out. We can fly to the moon. But on the other hand, um, we need to maintain a lot of intellectual humility. And so that's something we're starting to study in my lab with uh, uh, philosopher Mark Alfano. Online, what it goes viral on social media, and this is something I, I've been studying with uh, Billy Brady and other people uh, at NYU and at Yale, is that people tend to use moral emotional words, and those are words that have huge certainty, um, strong connotations about right and wrong. It gets retweeted more. About 20% for each moral emotional word you use in a tweet, uh, it's more 20% more likely to get retweeted. And if you use three or four of those in a message, 60 to 80% more likely to get retweeted. Nice. So that's the type of language that it that spreads. And we found the same thing. We analyzed every single American politician in the Senate, in Congress, running for president for a year, and we found the same thing. When they use that type of language, it goes viral. Um, but when we looked at half a million of these of these uh, messages. We found that it goes viral, but it starts to alienate other people who disagree with you politically. Mm-hmm. And so it's only getting retweeted and liked by people who share your belief system, but it starts to create or is associated with what looks like major echo chambers forming. 
And so the language, which I would say is the opposite of intellectual humility, is rewarded. It gets you uh, a reputation, it gets you followers, it gets you retweeted, it feels good Mm -hmm. to get a bunch of likes on your message. Um, You can monetize it now. So if you share a bunch of these, you know, if you have a podcast or a blog, it drives advertisers or people to your page, which gets you advertising revenue. Um, But when you talk about where we are in terms of our knowledge, we should be using words that are pretty much the opposite Mm -hmm. opposite of that. We Mm -hmm. should be showing intellectual humility, uh, openness, uh, curiosity, Mm -hmm. uh, engagement and interest with ideas that are new or that might challenge something that we've been thinking about. And the problem is that that doesn't get rewarded socially or economically. And so uh, I'm really getting more and more interested in it. That is um, super cool. What you can do um, to encourage people to use that type of language, to promote discussion rather than carve people into groups um, or alienate people. Um, but you can imagine that uh, Jack Dorsey or uh, Zuckerberg realized the value in intellectual humility. They could have a different algorithm. So latest tweets or whatever, top tweets in your Twitter feed were ones that used the language of intellectual humility and linked to higher quality sources yeah. rather than ones that used... Uh, moral emotions and uh, had hyperlinks to dubious sources. Yeah. We have it. We have the technology to do that. We just don't have the political will, um, and, and the science isn't quite there yet to figure out how to do that in an effective way. Yeah. I worry there'd be all these unintended consequences in ways that I haven't anticipated. But I do think that if we figure it out, imagine that you figured it out in a couple of years, five, ten years got better, or even five, even six months, you could go to uh, one of these CEOs and if you could get them to change. Twitter can scale that in an hour to be affect 800,000 people or 800 million people's news. Uh, Facebook or YouTube can do it for billions of people. So it's the first time in history you've had the power to tune people into higher quality information. For some reason, I'll tell you the reason in a second, there's not the will among these companies. And I think there's not the will because it uh, it hurts their bottom line. People are going to be tuning in less. They make less advertising revenue. People aren't, aren't yelling and screaming and insulting one another online. That's it. You're totally right. Like they're not, gonna, they're not currently going to do anything that's going to make people engage with their product less. Yeah. And they there may be some narrow mindedness into how you could get people to engage with your product. Your product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can imagine it'd be very scary to go. I wonder if people would engage with our product more if we tweaked it so that you know people were saying, "Am I wrong about this? What do you think?" Are presented more. It's very scary to like. They should A/B test it, like you said. They've done a little bit. I think Facebook has been a leader with this. With um, with trustworthiness, they crowdsource trustworthiness judgments. And there was a great paper by uh, Dave Rand and Gord Pennycook that showed that they started to downrate hyperpartisan and fake news sources in your feed, and it killed a lot of the money flowing into them from Facebook. Wow. Um, so they've done it, but at the same time as they did that po- incredibly positive thing, Twitter, right around the same time, changed it so you don't just see latest tweets first. It's top tweets as the default now on Twitter, mm-hmm. I believe. And now you're starting to see the kind of outragey stuff in your feed even though you don't want it yeah. it's really hard to figure out how to turn that off I still haven't figured it out for for uh, a Twitter account that I have I always have to uh, manually every time I log in switch it to latest tweets so it's like you move forward with one company the other company takes a step back yeah and we're no further along as humanity I mean we're talking all around these topics and this is all your paper is fantastic and I, I talk about it to people all the time I think, uh, yeah, I just think, you know, I, 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 this idea of, of identity and accuracy goals 
versus these other goals is worth talking about. I have one question, and then I want to ask about that. When it comes to changing people's minds, um, it's difficult often to define what you're trying to change, uh, especially if you don't know what the true like antecedent is to that person's reasoning, how they're getting to that conclusion. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes, people think they're just pursuing accuracy, when really they might be driven by a value or a group or, mm-hmm. or, or an attitude. Um, oftentimes, you think like you're trying to change a person's beliefs, but you're really trying to change their attitudes is what you're mm-hmm. actually attempting to change. And <clears throat> if it so happens that what you're trying to change in a person so that they draw a different conclusion or hold a different attitude about something mm-hmm. or more likely to trust a different source or entertain a different belief, the thing you're trying to change is a value. Mm-hmm. Can that be done? So we can definitely change people's values. It's not easy. But there's really interesting examples of this. So one that's changed in, in the last few decades is attitudes towards the LGBTQ community, mm-hmm. especially around things like same-sex marriage. If you plot attitudes and support for same-sex marriage over the last few decades, it went from hugely unpopular to hugely popular. In fact, you won't even see politicians disagree with it now because it would be the kiss of death. Whereas at one point... I think it was the 2000 or 2004 election in the U.S., um, Republicans were trying to put ballots uh, for referenda at the state level so to ban same-sex marriage illegally. And they did that to get out the vote. They thought that would actually get more people out to vote and support people, uh, George Bush and other Republican candidates. Now they wouldn't think of doing it because it would motivate the, so many people to come out against it. It would be a political kiss of death. Mm-hmm. And so that's an interesting issue where it's highly moralized uh, for many people and yet societal attitudes have shifted again it took decades a lot of hard work it's not just something that popped into people's minds they had to be persuaded and convinced through the hard work of a lot of activists uh, are, so, you, are you saying so the attitude change. changed yeah. on that issue because values change um, well I think one of the things that happens is the attitude changed in part because it was connected to values people already held. Mm-hmm. This um, is the moral reframing idea. Yeah, okay. so this is, you can reframe something in a way. So you can frame uh, gay marriage in terms of the stability of families and the sanctity of marriage mm-hmm. in ways that make moderates or independents or, uh, you know, center-right people more supportive mm-hmm. of it. Uh, so that's one thing that changes. You can also, you can take something and reframe it in a way that changes a value. Uh, but I, I guess that, that is a moralized issue that did change. Mm. Can you change the underlying value that people have? Um, it's good thing. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I can't think of any compelling evidence that I've seen that changes either. the underlying value. Like persuasion has mm. like a, it's like, like you almost call it bounded persuasion. Yeah. Like there's a certain point at which like that, that person's value is not going to be changed through a persuasion attempt, but you could take the values that they have and say, well, did you know that those actually support this attitude when you think about it? You know, like, but the, if I wanted to change your value system, like, I don't have that power. I think, I think some major life changes have to happen to you or you have to find yourself beholden to a different group of people so that your belonging goals are different than they currently are, that kind of stuff. Am I right about that? I think you're right. But again, I would say there's some evidence. So societies do change their values sometimes. Some societies become more open to other cultures or communities. So attitudes towards immigration have changed the last mm. few years, become more positive in the U.S. Um, so there are cases where we can do it. 
uh, where there's societal changes. Um, but I do think that what you're getting at is something that we haven't talked about. Uh, my colleague John Jones calls this political affinities. That people have a biological foundation that attracts them towards certain types of belief systems, uh, political leaders or parties or policies. And you're born with a genetic foundation. It manifests itself in certain personality traits. For example, you might be highly conscientious mm. or um, very open or very closed to new experiences. And then what happens is, as you get older, you look around in the world and you see some politician arguing for open borders, another one arguing for a strong military and a wall. Mm. And if you're an open person, you're probably more attracted to the person who is, you know, has attitudes as pro-immigration. If you're somebody who is scores lower on those types of preferences, you're probably more attracted to a political candidate who has a you know uh, recommends strong borders. Mm. Um, so, so that is something that varies across individuals and attracts them to certain policies and and worldviews and belief mm. systems. And you sort them into these groups, and they end up sorting. And so, what you've seen in the United States is it used to be the case that political ideology, whether you're a liberal or conservative, was only modestly correlated with political identity. So you'd have conservative Democrats, mm. you would have liberal Republicans, and so the correlation at one point was about 0.4. Now it's about 0.75 or 0.8. Mm. They're almost perfectly correlated. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is what you just said, sorting. We've slowly, people have slowly figured out which party to slot themselves into that optimally aligns with their disposition and mm. orientation towards the world. And now they're, now you kick out people who are, who are heretical. So the term for a Republican Party is they don't want to vote in rhinos, Republicans in name only. Mm -hmm. So unless you're kind of across the board supporting all these conservative policies, you're not seen as a true Republican, you get kicked out. You see that in the Democratic primaries. There's yeah. a lot of debate about are these people pure enough to represent the party? Or are they too compromising or moderate to do it? Yeah. And unfortunately, and I could be wrong about this, I feel like that's hap that sort of sorting is happening... Every everything with everything. <laughs> like, yeah, it's sorting in terms of what one of the best predictors a few elections ago of, of where you um, of who you voted for was proximity to a Starbucks. There it is. So all kinds of weird product things, which basically probably is a correlated with urban urbanness, probably a higher income, higher education, and so that's a that's why you get the term latte liberals derogatively. Mm. But it turns out that that actually was a pretty good, powerful predictor. Yeah. I see your Starbucks <laughs> cup there. Um, so there are all these, we, we, there's evidence that people are moving into districts and counties that align with them politically. There, you can sort yourself in terms of what newspaper you buy, what TV show you tune into, who you follow on Twitter or Facebook. You can curate your feed. Um, you can dive down whatever rabbit hole on YouTube. Yeah. Man. It's gonna be hard to unwind this stuff. I don't, I mean, I'll start with TiVo. When I'll start with TiVo, man. TiVo is gonna, when they write our, uh, you know, uh, descendants, when they look back and go, how did this happen? Um, they're gonna, we're all blind to it. It started with TiVo. <laughs> like, oh, I see you like uh, westerns, and it started there. Yeah. And, then it, and, then, and then the bombs fell. Uh, uh, um, uh, wow. So, last little bit of stuff I want to talk about is this idea of, of we have human beings are motivated reasoners. Yeah. Um, and we are motivated by all sorts of things. Um, 
And you could like use all sorts of different languages to talk about this. In your paper, you use, just use the term goal, which is a nice way to look at it, right? Because we have a certain, we're motivated to satisfy a certain goal. Um, and if you're hungry, you know, you're motivated to go get food and your behavior is motivated. Your reasoning might be motivated. Like two people are having an argument about what, what do you, uh, what do you think about doing tomorrow? Uh, and what do you think about doing in the next hour? And like you slowly push the conversation toward getting food and your reasoning is motivated by hunger. Um, I love motivated reasoning. It's the greatest thing ever uh, to talk about because everyone wants to, wants to believe that we are completely free agents, not motivated by anything except our desire for truth and yeah. beauty and justice. <laughs> um, you could talk briefly, or not briefly, just talk as much as you like about this idea of like, um, they have many different goals and we a reason toward those goals. And um, a lot of the arguments I think people have, especially on social media, is this assumption that all parties at all times are pursuing accuracy above all else. And if you disagree with me, that um, there's something... There's a reason why you disagree with me. Uh, why don't you listen to my facts? Like, why aren't you pursuing accuracy like I am? That sort yeah. of thing. You can talk about that. Yeah. Okay, so there's two things. Um, the first thing is, obviously, people are engaged in an enormous amount of motivated reasoning as they go through through life. They want to fit in. They want to signal who they are. They want to be socially rewarded and belong, um, have high social status. Um, they also have different priors. So this is something we didn't talk a lot about in our paper, but, but it's part of the puzzle, which is that if you tune in to Fox News all day and I tune in to MSNBC, we might just have absorbed different stories about what's happening in the news and we're arguing online and it's because we've been presented with different facts. Mm. And so that can also be the fact, even if we're not engaged in motivated reason, we're just like, how can you not both know this um, is an assumption that I might have based on the news I've seen mm-hmm. if, if you aren't aware of certain things and vice versa. Um, and so this feeds into what... Uh, psychologists call naive realism, which is we naively think we're seeing the world as it is. And so if somebody disagrees with us, they must be an idiot or willfully trying to, um, you know, uh, embarrass us or act ignorant. Or they've been misled. Or they've been misled or manipulated or or duped or they're dumb (laughs) or they're they're, they're a lemming. And so a lot of times, I think that there's two layers. The first layer you have to get through when you're talking to someone or debating them is, uh, what are their priors? So are they just coming from a different background, different culture, different state, different media ecosphere, and they've been fed different things than you? Um, and then you want to present them with high-quality information, hopefully from a source that they trust. You've pointed out how important that is. Um, and then if they don't absorb an update based on that, then you start to have a clue that maybe some motivated reasoning is also going on. This is good. But, let, me, let me walk through this again. Okay, sir. So, <laughs> I'm engaging with someone who believes something different from what I believe in, and I'm currently even attempting to get them to accept some sort of fact. Yeah. Um, and it may be, or maybe I'm getting trying to persuade them to hold a different attitude, and maybe even just maybe I might be trying to get them to see that their values might be misaligned. That's a lofty goal. Yeah. Okay. And the first thing I should do is see, okay, well... What is their model of reality? What are the priors yeah. they're using to, uh, to to arrive at conclusions? What is the epistemology? Well, I guess that would be separate, but those are their priors. And, so, you know, define your terms, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, if they if I now present a fact and they're still um, uh, resistant to it, yeah. um, what do we do next? So then, I think the first thing is, start from a place of, assuming positive intentions of, mm-hmm. of most people 
um, and assume that they just have different news source or information than you, and their priors are different. If if their priors either aren't different from yours, or they're just resistant to updating based on new facts that you're presenting that are inconsistent with their priors, um, then you start to you, then you start to think, well, maybe there is some motivated reasoning going on as well. If they're mm-hmm. spinning or coming up with weak reasons not to believe the evidence you presented. Then you then you might suspect that they're engaging motivated reasoning, and so then there's a whole other set of issues that you need to address if they're engaging in motivated reasoning. Facts and fact checking them are probably not going to help get through to them. You're going to have to think of what, why are they motivated? Is it that it's a public debate and it's on social media and they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their friends or their mm. peers? Take the conversation offline. If they're still doing it, then you might wonder. Is it because you are someone who threatens them and they're not gonna they're worried they're not gonna look smart? Is it because they're worried that it will get out that they were wrong and that that could be embarrassing for them or they might get kicked out of their the group that they belong to? Um, so there's all or it might just be a cognitive distance of realizing they're on the wrong side of history. They voted for someone that they th- thought was gonna do good things and now they're realizing they aided and abetted somebody who did terrible things. There's all of these psychological reasons that people might have for. Believing something or supporting uh, some some person or some party, or some group, and by by fact checking them, you might be triggering one or more of these motives that will make them very resistant to change. See, this is so this, this relates back to the the, bear, the attack from the bear thing, right? Like, um, what was odd about that to me, even though like I'm obsessed with this and do a show about it, is. Um, that your belonging goals, and you have other things you mentioned, belonging, epistemic, existential status, system, moral, but you know, like reputation costs, I like to think about it in terms of that, and your, you know, belonging goals and reputation costs are kind of like, you know, the yin-yang of it, um, mm-hmm. that that is a higher motivation than getting the right answer, being wrong, if the group, that if your identity or your group belonging doesn't hinge on being a person who is accurate. Yeah. That freaks me out. It freaks me out. Because you think that as an organism, and you could just speak to this, please. Yeah. You would think that an organism like ourselves like would pursue accuracy because it needs to have a pretty accurate model of reality so that it can exist and not eat poison and not get eaten. <laughs> right? But like, uh, there are situations in which we are like, no, the social costs are for greater. And if you could talk about that. Okay, so let's talk about the flat earth conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, for an astronaut or someone who works at NASA, they need to understand the Earth is round because lives are at stake. Someone will die if they don't get that right. Mm-hmm. Um, for the average person sharing conspiracy theory videos about how the Earth is actually flat, it has no bearing on their their quality of mm-hmm. life, their reproductive potential or something like that for them to be accurate. And in, in fact, it could benefit them to be wrong because then they can gain status in the flat earth community, they have their own set of uh, belonging and uh, status um, concerns that if you're the most popular blogger or YouTube video creator on flat earth, you might get invited to give keynotes and be a well-known speaker at the uh, series of conferences they hold, which they do hold. They hold these pseudoscientific events. And people want to come up and get a selfie with you or buy you around a drink at the bar if they're a fellow flat earther and they know you from seeing your videos on Facebook. Um, you might be able to, you know, date somebody in that community um, because they admire the 
great podcast you have on mm-hmm. flat earth theory or how you debunked the astrophysicist at Caltech. <laughs> and so um, all of this sounds foolish to us, but to them that's the reality that they might live in. And to go back, to present them with evidence that challenges their entire sense of status and belonging in the community that they've been uh, spending all their time in could be enormously threatening. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you get to cult psychology, that's what gets you there. Yeah. It's like, th- this is the entire, a lot of people who go into those are people who, um, their life's not going so well, they don't have a sense of meaning or purpose or connection, and that they're more susceptible to being sucked into a community that gives them that. And if you're taking somebody who has no status or reputation, is not really well-liked, in a community, and you, and they have the potential to be a prominent member of another community, that's going to be incredibly compelling for them uh, psychologically. Mm-hmm. How is the brain applying the weight of these things? Is, it, is this innate? Like these are these are like, um, I mean, I, I know that I'm asking a question you might have the answer to, but like, yeah. so I'm, I'm assuming that like belonging is like locked in is like that is going to get you hurt. But you were talking about but situations with the belonging and status are core human motivations that cut across culture and people. Right. And it, the, I mean, there's research showing if you tell somebody that no one wants to work with them, they're never going to belong again. Their IQ plummets about 15 points. Um, wow. They get it back, but it's so distressing um, psychologically to be socially ostracized that they have these devastating responses. 15 points? Maybe. About 15 points, yeah. Um, if the manipulation is really strong. Yeah. Now, in reality... The, the threat to these needs can range from someone stealing my man, which can be an extremely threatening and upsetting, mm. um, to um, I'm just going to lose like 100 followers on my YouTube channel. And that's going to be very weakly threatening for most people. And so there's a range of degree of threat. And people who are going to be pushed over the edge are going to be at the extremes where their livelihood, their relationship, their family... Um, are threatened mm-hmm. by something. And so those are the people who are going to be most likely to cling to to the very end to a belief system or an identity. That's where you get political elites, right? Right. You talk about political elites, why won't certain senators dissent and vote a certain way? Well, it's because there goes their political career for most of them. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to be, lose the next primary and they're not going to have a luxurious consulting career after it either. Um, so... In addition to all the friends and social network they've built up through their entire career to get to that point, which is basically what they probably spent 20 or 30 years doing yeah. with all their holidays and events and evenings and weekends. So is it any surprise that they won't dissent when they their, their political leader doesn't do something that they agree with? Man, once you realize all the aspects of their life and their social needs that are at stake, it's hard to imagine them dissenting. What about this exact thing you're talking about in the in the alchemy of someone like uh, you know we're all going to have some holiday time with, with people who uh, are not going to accept our view of the world, be it sometimes fact based. There's going to be somebody mm-hmm. in your family that is a uh, something like a flat earther, and there's going to be somebody in your family who doesn't agree with you politically. So you're going to be messing with facts and attitudes, um, and they will. That person doesn't have... I mean, that doesn't seem to me like that person has any real stakes in this yeah. game. Why are they going to be motivated by these belonging goals so strongly? Yeah, so for them, the belonging goal might not be threatened, but it might be a threat of status. Your uncle might not want to concede his 
political beliefs because it makes him look bad in front of the rest of the family. Mm. Um, or it means that he hit a moral goal to be right. It suddenly makes him realize he actually supported some party or politician who did heinous evil things. Mm. Um, and so there's a reluctance for people in uh, surrounded by their family to admit that they supported somebody who did heinous things. That they don't want to lose status and be embarrassed. So they have they don't have the same compulsion to believe things. They're more, probably going to be more open-minded than your average political operative. <laughs> um, but they nevertheless are human beings who have a lot of these same goals and, and differences in priors from you. One last thing, and you mentioned this uh, toward the end of your paper, like, without it being a, an interaction between two people, that you can unknowingly have your own... Um, um, your sensory modalities, your memory, your evaluations, your perceptions can be affected by these uh, mm-hmm. competing goals. Uh, like partisanship can alter your executive function, your memory, your visual perception, and your attention control all at the same time as an individual just looking at stuff going on around you. You can talk about that for a minute. That's blows my mind. It's yeah. So the the effect, the aspect, the the most radical part of our paper is the possibility that identity can change perception, that changes how we're interpreting the world around us. Um, the 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 some evidence for that is affecting things like attention. So if you and I both open the newspaper, if we have different political beliefs, my eyes, my visual attention goes to certain headlines. Uh, stories that might make me feel better about my belief system. Mm-hmm. Your visual attention might go to other headlines mm-hmm. to read stories that support your belief system. And so that's by, by selecting our visual attention or altering it, um, we're going to get different information about what's going on in the world. Uh-huh. So we're no longer going to have a shared sense of reality. And you're doing that second by second, and we're, day after day. And we're doing that all day and long. accumulating a totally different priors and worldviews as we move forward. Yeah, and so we're doing studies on this where we're showing people debate clips where you imagine the 2016 presidential debate you see on a split screen, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump side by side saying a lot of stuff. What can you remember after a 90-minute debate? Well, we're looking at what people, where people are looking, what they're remembering selectively, and it seems like partisan identities are shaping what they encoded from those debates. Um, and so it's, a, it's still an open question how early in perception will be affected by political identities. Um, it might may mainly be at the level of attention or interpretation. Um, but the moment that we're seeing different things and paying attention to different things, um, it's, it, you have to think of what, what kind of intervention are we going to give that person? You can't just give them the same newspaper you read because they're going to see it a different way. You can't just show them the exact same debate that you just watched mm-hmm. or, or a video clip that you just saw of somebody on YouTube of somebody dismantling some outdated idea, they might be paying attention to different things in the same video clip or tuning out. As a final question, and you can make us sad or happy or, or optimistic <laughs> or pessimistic, you can make us always want to go and drink and, and live in the woods. Whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to do to us, and this is like your work right now. This is your, this is what you do in this fantastic office. Um, we're, good, we're about to have really good deep fakes, as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, this uh, attempt to dismantle trust in all uh, information institutions is going to continue. People are going... The news, news organizations are continuing to make 
less and less money and have to either create more and more clickbait or just go out of business. Um, The information landscape doesn't look good for the kind of epistemological approaches that are advocated by the scientific uh, community or the journalistic community. Um, That's how it looks, right? And probably, if nothing else, we're going to live through a weird time. As a scientist who studies this very thing, like, what are your predictions going forward of what's going to happen? And what should we, if anything, do as just regular old people living in this world? So let me give you... I don't know the research on predictions shows even experts don't make very good predictions. So let me give you a range of possibilities. Okay. So the worst case scenario is, and I I have smart colleagues who believe this, um, that... West, some of West, some Western democracies start to fall because the conflict due to misinformation and polarization increases and increases. And so that's the worst case scenario. And we start, our institutions continue to get eroded and destroyed. The, the slightly better version of it is we probably, there might be some regular, I think there eventually will be regulation of social media companies and you might start to re-regulate the way that news is presented on TV once as citizens have to realize how this is harming democracy and society. And so there might be some middle ground, kind of what you alluded to before. With every technology, there's a disruption period, and then it settles off, Mm. partly due to we figure out how to regulate it and what the algorithms should be looking like and how to optimize it for uh, the good things and minimize the harm that it causes. So I think that's the most likely outcome is if there's some kind of stable equilibrium that arises due to regulation and and these companies being proactive about these things. The the optimistic scenario, and I'm an intrinsic optimist, is that we actually have learned some lessons. We had really smart people thinking about this, discussing this, and average citizens are realizing the impact on their life. There's research showing their Thanksgivings are getting shorter in where you have cross-partisan Thanksgiving events. People go into a district where their family doesn't agree with them politically. Um, there's all kinds of erosions of a lot of elements of social capital um, from our Thanksgiving dinner to the amount of time we spend online clicking through social media and not feeling good about it. And so you have a lot of people actively changing their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You have people quitting certain social media uh, apps you have people, you know, actively going to workshops to try to figure out how to talk to people they disagree with. Um, you have families. So my family's in Canada. With their, when they're, my parents and their friends get together, my parents are very moderate. But when their friends get together, they have now, at the start of every dinner event, banned discussions of Donald Trump. Um, my friends do this as well now. Yeah. When we get together, like, no politics. Yeah, because it destroys no the politics. evening. So I think what's happening is people are realizing how this has affected their life. And, and I know I've changed my own social media behavior, my interactions to reflect as I've learned more and thought about it more critically. So, and then imagine if we go to Zuckerberg and Dorsey and these people and they proactively change the algorithms and realize this has gotten out of hand, it's gone bad. Um, we're willing to cut back a little money or we realize the amount of money we can make in the short term might blow the whole thing up in the long term and it's not worth it. If you have some vision and proactive efforts by some of these companies, as well as the bottom-up grassroots uh, organizing of individuals, then you can imagine some actually healthier equilibrium where we get to benefit from the technology that 
is really ingenious and has changed our lives in some really positive ways. Allowed us to connect and find people, find a vegan a day if we're vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can harness that, then we have a hopeful future. Shall it be so? I hope. Uh, but I will say this: if uh, we end up in a post-apocalyptic zombie nuclear chemical thing, uh, you're more than welcome to come to my prepper pavilion. Uh, it, 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 near do you have one of those bunkers? Yeah, yeah. Like six months yeah, of food. See, that's what I do. I hedge my bets. I do, I be, I'm going to uh, hope for the best, prepare for worst. So uh, that's why I'm here talking to you, but then I'm going to go back and, and gas up the generator. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for uh, spending the time with me talking about this. Uh, these are the, the issues of our time, and I think if, if anything else, I hope the audience is... Um, um, feels some optimism that science all over the place and scientists are devoted to figuring this stuff out and helping uh, policymakers or uh, just us, just individuals mm-hmm. live a more informed life thanks to actually going, applying the scientific method to it. So thanks for doing that. Thanks. I'll say the one cool thing about being a scientist is uh, when you turn on the news and you see something crazy you can go, hey, that's interesting. I wonder why people are doing that. That's and it. you can do studies on it. So that's why I'm doing all this stuff. I, uh, I'm just like the rest of the people listening. I'm just curious about this stuff. And that's so that's good. the cool. A lot of scientists are dove into this stuff because we're just fascinated by it. We're freaked I, out by it, but we're also optimistic that we can figure it out. Thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah, all right. That'll be the end of the interview. Uh, and, uh, that is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about on this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. To support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you can get t-shirts, signed books, posters, all sorts of cool stuff. Just check it out at patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. To follow us on social, go to Twitter and you can find us at Not Smart Blog. I am at David McRaney. On everything else, this is You're Not So Smart, Facebook and YouTube and all those other things. You are not so smart. Slash, you are not so smart. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Banjo Apocalypse. New shows soon on all sorts of cool stuff. I'll, uh, I'll fill you in on all those social things. See you then.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.